0: I think one of the themes of this year has been that we've got some challenges but I think the unanimous view appears to be that the horizon further down the track is going to be really rosy and exciting and better outcomes for consumers and hopefully more rewarding roles for everyone in the industry. Paul, open us out. I know that you've written very eloquently for professional planner on this theme. What do you see the future looking like?
1: Well it's an interesting interesting, uh, position because you know people ask me if you knew what you knew now, back then, two years before the Hain Royal Commission, when you started investing in financial planning businesses, would you do it? And you know, the simple answer is absolutely, because those sorts of things are just white noise in front of you right now. They're kind of just here and now issues. But when you look through that to the trends that are in place, the underlying thematics that are driving us all forward, there are four major ones that I reckon are setting us apart in terms of this particular Um, A part in time, if you like, compared to any other part of my career. And I I wouldn't mind spending just a few minutes on those four things. So, um, the first uh, trend or thematic that is in play that is pushing us along is a systemic change to the demand supply curve. Now, I don't know if you remember Econ 101 back at school or at uni, but the first lesson was the demand supply curve. Right? And there's no question in my mind that both of those lines are fundamentally changing at quite a fast speed right now. Uh, no doubt demand is increasing, and interestingly, COVID acted, acted as a bit of a catalyst for that increase in demand. And you look across our accounting firms and our financial planning firms that we invest in, uh, they have unprecedented demand, inquiry, curiosity from their clientele and future clientele compared to any other chapter in my career that I can remember. So you've got this systemic change in demand. The complexity we're all trying to fix is one of the reasons why we've got that increase in demand. Don't forget that. Complexity has bred this wonderful opportunity for our profession to help consumers navigate what they don't have the skills to navigate on their own. So be careful what you wish for. If you throw away too much complexity, um, you know, what's the long-term consequence of that? Supply, uh, it goes without saying, uh, supply is changing. Supply is falling. There is an economic school of thought that says, don't worry about demand, don't think about demand. The key theme to consider when you plot your next business venture is supply. If you can turn up with the right product at the right time or the right service at the right time where supply is low, that in and of itself is often enough to build a great business. So with FASIA, barriers to entry, I'm sure capital requirements are coming. There's a whole bunch of things happening that are impacting supply. So supply's going down, demand's going up. Last time I checked the Econ 101 textbook, it said as a result of those two things, prices go up. So that's the first thing that's pushing us along. The second one is that finally, finally, entrepreneurs have worked out, and I'm not just talking about people in this room, but financial planners as well, that the advice margin is valuable. I can't believe the number of people that stopped me in the street when we first announced this venture To invest in financial planning firms, and they asked me, How do you make money out of that? How on earth could you make money out of investing in financial planning firms? I knew immediately we had the right idea because there was this preordained thinking around, Well, you've got to sell product to make money, and if you're not trying to sell product, you're never going to make money. And I thought you were very diplomatic, Dante, before when you got asked the question by Colin on this topic because there's no question in my mind that the FSC have played a significant role in a lot of the, the complexity we saw in the corporations act yesterday, all of these one-off lobbying bits and pieces and changes. When you've got life insurance companies, platforms and fund managers running the agenda for advice, that's what happens. Because they're rocking along with their ideas and they've got power and money. And uh, ideas, power and money equal you know, change, sometimes in the wrong direction. So the advice margin is now seriously seen as attractive. There are smart innovative entrepreneurs getting involved in acquiring that margin. The third trend is fragmentation. Uh, When you get a whole bunch of small businesses all running away from the safe havens of the institutions and I'm talking about the banks uh, and they're all now looking for people to help them, to supply them with services and the like, you get great opportunity and smart entrepreneurs running planning firms are seeing that opportunity, they're compiling smart services and value propositions and they're targeting this fragmented set of SMEs who need them. And the last one, the last trend, and I think the most important of them all, is financial planning firms are no longer little family cottage businesses who are thriving and surviving off subsidised payments from product manufacturers, They're no longer concerning themselves with with which platform or which model portfolio to use. They are now almost overnight commercial businesses. And because of that, the thinking has changed completely. The question about technology that you asked before, uh, the reason they're not embracing technology is these SMEs up until now haven't had the capability internally to project manage or change manage the implementation of your software solution. It's as simple as that. That's going to change because it's my view that financial planning and the wealth management sector will look like the accounting sector in about five to 10 years time. In the accounting sector, you've got big four, mid-tier SMEs. In planning, you've just got SMEs. Okay, that's all you've got today. The largest financial planning firm, pure financial planning firm that I've come across, has revenue of about 17 million, that's tiny. A mid-tier accounting firm, a small one, has revenue of 25 million. Mid-tier accounting firms have household brands, they have sharp value propositions, they use technology, they are agile, and they will compete with the big four and they'll certainly compete successfully against the smaller the smaller ones. That's the opportunity in planning. You know, there's no question the AZNGA strategy will be to try and enable the creation of what we're calling super firms that will have brands that consumers will know consumers right around the country will know, and they'll compete really hard on all of those things we were talking about. And most importantly, they'll be entrepreneur- entrepreneurs. They won't give a damn about the licensee <coughs> proposition. They won't care about the flags that you put on the beach and ask them to swim between. They'll say, thanks very much for giving me those compliance policies, but if I want to go and build a property advisory capability and back it up with mortgage broking and back it up with rent role management and back it up with MA and advice to the pharmacy company that's buying the property, I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna find the licenses I need to do each of those component parts, and I'll do it in separate entities under one brand, and I'm gonna build a super firm. And that's what's happening, and I, take, I see that just by sitting on the boards of these firms. That's how these people are thinking. They're not thinking anymore about their little role just as an advisor in the suburb providing retirement planning advice and pre-retirement planning advice, it's changing.
0: A wonderful premise and uh, mm-hmm. elaborately elicited. Um, Matt, if you could chip in with a, a perspective that obviously you would be at the top end of this potential tier system, there's three tiers. If we have a end of this cottage era and some superpower, was, what are the- Super f- firms. Super firms.
2: Superpowers.
0: Superpowered firms. <laughs> You'll those be the like superpower. <laughs> Where would this advantage consumers, for example?
2: Yeah, I, well, I definitely think Paul's uh, on the money with uh, where, where some of those businesses are going. In fact, I know in a bit of the DD I've done at uh, A&P, uh, A&P's investing in some of those as well. So rather than being just the licensee, you're, you're also a business partner, an equity partner, mm-hmm. you know, and helping them grow. I think this, the true skill there, and, and Paul's very good at this, is finding the right businesses and the right entrepreneurs to back, um, because you, you get that wrong. You know that you 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 suffer with that as well so you need to find the right people but um just like paul was saying if it's like the accounting profession uh probably the model that i wanted to address is um not not the superpower i absolutely think that's going to be part of it but i think it's also we've lost sight a little bit of that emerging self-employed firm so it is the cottage firm uh, but i see a lot of rhetoric I've, i've read a lot of the uh the comments from different uh, providers including amp actually that uh, the single advice firm is no longer the single advice firm is extinct what i worry about that is i worry about that because if you if you're relying on professional year students to come in and you're also you're also supporting these big mature businesses we're going to create a generational gap of people who are going, to be, uh, are going to be the next entrepreneurs in the, in the industry. And we can't lose sight of the fact that some of the, some of the people that Paul's talking about were actually people who left jobs mm. to start up a business and they were prepared to earn 50 to 70,000 in the first year and then build up their client base over a couple of years, then add people, then grow. We can't lose, we can't lose those people in the industry. So I, I, I would be a big advocate of saying that those single advice firms still survive but maybe the infrastructure and maybe the support that we give to them is very prescribed. So we get control over technology and we use technology to to control that, but we actually give them the ability to grow like many other businesses in this industry and profession have have grown. I wanna link that also to a lot of the discussion about affordable advice. I I found these conversations about some of these themes, I find them really hard because I just think they're too high. You know, affordable advice is too high. Conflict of interest is too high. We've actually to, to actually solve some of this. We've actually got to get down and get you know get to the detail. So um, smaller problems are easy to solve. As soon as you over you make things too complex. People kick the can down the road, so we'll come back and address that later, or even the law reform, Chapter 7. I mean, good luck, five, five years' time. I think it should be done in, in the background, but there's lots of stuff that we should be doing, like right now. So, one area is, is when you, w- the discussion that we have about younger people getting advice. Um, what I've learned, I've been sort of spent the last 10 years in an adjacent um, industry, um, and what I've been doing is helping mortgages add financial planning. So not financial planners add mortgages, but mortgage mortgage brokers add financial planning to so what they do. And you learn a lot about those clients in the 30s to 40s and, and you would you would have been through it all yourselves. When you were 35 and you said what are the top five financial things that you wanted to address, where do you think superannuation was six? <laughs> <laughs> not six but 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 number five. It's well it's actually well down the <laughs> list. So We come from a product point of view, so if we're a superannuation fund, we say our job is to to push superannuation somewhat. But if you're client-focused, you understand what the 35-year-old is going through and then you package your services um, to actually uh, support that. So a 35-year-old, number one on their list is their mortgage. Why aren't planners solving mortgages, more planners solving mortgages for clients? Cash flow is fundamental to financial planning and then the mortgage is second off the back of that. So why more planners aren't involved in the mortgage broking side of the business? I think we've missed a huge opportunity there. I've been working with a business that actually installs mortgage brokers into financial planners. We can add 50, 100, 150,000 to their revenue. God, that's, that's a real relief, isn't it, for some of those businesses nowadays because everything that they've seen has been taking revenue away but all of a sudden you've got a service that a client wants and is at the top of their list that's actually giving you some revenue. So I think business, the, some of the new business models should be people that are specialising in younger people and there is revenue there for them to actually um, capture. It's through the mortgage, it's through the insurances and it's through
1: um, cash flow and, and budgeting. So how do they build their business so that they can deliver that? You're, you're really just talking about being a consumer-led business, right? Yeah. Because the reason why I remember the days of um, running channels, advisor channels for banks. You know, interestingly, ironically, banks, right? But we weren't selling a mortgage uh, advisory capability to our clients because it was a funds management-led or a platform-led distribution channel. Yep. Now, had we been more consumer-centric, we would have been advising on mortgages. Yeah,
2: and and I think whenever you work backwards from (coughs) the client, you can't, you know, you you can rarely go wrong, right? absolutely. And and I think Scott got asked the question by Colin last night, what banks are very good at is they're very good at selling products. Mm -hmm. They're not great at giving advice around that product. What we're very good at is building the strategy, but then the product is really important to actually bring that strategy to life. And cash flow is a really
1: important part of a 30 to 40-year-old's life. We've just built a business um, supplying advice to NRL and AFL players. And people ask us, why would you do that? They've got no money. Uh, Well, it's for the reason you just articulated. NRL and AFL players for about, Six years have quite a bit of money, and the, the way they build wealth, and the need they have, and the desire they have, is, is actually a property-led desire. Well, when I first started the sorry, sorry to take it <laughs> over here, we? Uh, but when I first started the industry, right, I,
2: I, I can remember that there were actual presentations um, to, that, that said why, you're, why Australians are idiots for investing in property, and, and we used to convince them, and that's because we were trying to sell managed funds. But you cannot, you cannot convince Australians that property is not a good investment. So why don't we embrace it? And mm. why don't we give advice? I'm not saying let's be real estate agents. I'm not saying that. <laughs> but there is forecasting work that we can do. There is cash flow work that we can do. And there's implementation work that we can do for those. A- and let's quickly um, bri- just <laughs> we'll bring in the audience
0: in two ways. One is um, I'm scanning the room looking for those little red lights to draw an audience question in, but there's an audience question that I think draws on your premise, Paul, that this is an opportunity for emergent firms that are in the room or people that might want to leave and create their own firms in five years' time. Curious, what will be the differentiator that makes success? There's an audience question that's coming up on your Slido uh, opportunity. What will differentiate the survivors and thrivers in that middle tier, the people that become household names in five years' time? And you've got five options, geographies, quality of service, cost and margins, that ability to control their p quality of advice, and the technologies and architecture. I suspect they're all interwoven, but uh, an opportunity for your thoughts. And obviously, the beautiful thing about being here together is you can expand on that through uh, providing a question. Paul, I did a touch of economics once upon a time. Mm. You spoke about demand shifting to the right mm. and supply shifted to the left. <coughs> the new equilibrium point will create a higher price. But I think one of the themes we're really interested in, and Colin spoke to Pamela Hanrahan this morning, will it mean that quantity changes? Are we able to provide more in this new scenario or will it stay roughly the same? I
1: honestly don't know. Um, I mean, so this, is a, this is a very interesting discussion we're all having about you know, trying to make advice affordable to all Australians. If you go and talk to commercial entrepreneurs about this question, a lot of them don't care. OK, a lot of them say, well, my business isn't that. Mm. Business people don't think that way. Business people say, well, there's scarce resources that I've got control of. I've got unlimited demands on those, ex- on those resources. How am I going to deploy them? And they deploy them in the way that they think they can get the best return on that capital. And that ain't providing financial advice to all Australians, I'm sorry to say, uh, because that's almost impossible in this, in this environment at the moment. It's about face-to-face, specialised, uh, High-quality advice to people who have got money, and who actually desperately need that advice, and who are willing to pay for it. Okay, that's the, the most of the advice models I see. That's the MO. Okay, there are people. Bernie Ripoll will tell you there are people trying to build businesses to service a much broader, uh, a broader community than that. And that's fantastic, and I'm sure at some point in time that's going to get solved, and you know the the, the quality and quantity will both uh, improve but you've already had a debate for a day and a half about the things that need to happen to ensure some of that. But right now, if someone comes to Australia with a dollar to spend in this sector, and one of the things you didn't have on that chart was capital, by the way, Mm -hmm. but I'd I'd, I'd say you need capital to do that. Um, One of, you know, someone with capital ain't gonna go after, uh, you know, trying to supply advice to all Australians. It's not on the agenda.
0: A quick comment, Matt, on the results. We've got a session coming up with Darren and and, uh, with Andrew looking at technology. I think that's one of the key meta trends that we're exploring. If you were looking, I mean, I'm sure there's other people at AMP that also chip in, but you spoke about equity stakes. Are you looking for people that adopt technology well, whether that's their own IP or they just
2: have created or borrowed that architecture? I think think technology is is one of the critical critical components that's going to give us that scale. Possibly, um, if I have a look at what's happened in the industry, um, I think that where all, the, where all the capital for technology investment went into was, were the platforms. Mm-hmm. And, and having worked at the banks, um, they understand net interest margin. That's, that's, that's what they get. And they said, okay, well, if I invest in the platform, I get a margin on assets under management. Let's do that. Let's put all the capital into there. There was no capital. There was no capital invested in, um, in financial advice technology. And what we ended up with, and uh, Michael uh, did a great presentation yesterday, but what we ended up with was, a, was pretty much a monopoly. And in a monopoly, you're not going to get that competition, you're not going to get that innovation. Y- yes, regulation makes it hard as well, but if, geez, we had more competition in that space. So I think as advice as, as a businesses, we've got to create the competition in that technology space. It mm. gives incentives for people to come in. So we can't lock ourselves into one provider we've actually got to be able to link to, to several providers to, to allow that competition to come in. And then we'll see improvements in, in what technology is delivered. We've got just under
0: seven minutes and I'd love to close out with a couple of audience questions. I've got one more that hopefully will elicit some interest. Paul, what's the role of the licensee in the scenario that you're painting five years down the track?
1: Uh, look, I think y- y- licensees, they're called that, uh, or, or dealer groups as they used to be called, that they're called that because once upon a time, their key you know, value proposition was licensing, mm-hmm. okay? Now whether that changes or not in the future is kind of irrelevant. SME businesses are going to need some form of utility company providing them with services. Whether those services be a licence or training or technology or even just community, m mm-hmm. uh, and there's a whole bunch of things that SMEs need. And so this fragmentation I was talking about before is creating an opportunity for the new licensee to emerge. Now, if you wanna, if you wanna sort of grow inside out as a licensee, if your core, if your core sort of DNA is in compliance or quality assurance or licensing, well, there's a lot of other things you can license. You know, like property and MDAs and, and all sorts of enterprises out there require licensing. So if I was running a licensee and my DNA was QA. I'd start looking at how do I become a QA firm? Mm. Firstly, in financial services, and then maybe outside of that. I mean, there's great opportunity for entrepreneurs here, but if you're prepared to think more broadly than that, a utility, a utility service of some sort to a growing number of high-quality super firms sounds like a pretty good place to be. If I'm a licensee uh, CEO and I can get my hand on a, bit of, a few dollars in capital, there's a great opportunity out there to provide an ever-expanding, series of both licensing and other utility services to super firms. That's how I see it playing out.
0: Superb. Uh, a bit like an auction, I saw some movement and uh, table 11 nearly got a question, but uh, that was just a mint. Um, I, I might <laughs> So I be, might be uh... careful. Oh, no. Perfect. Uh, uh, Matt, we'll come back to you, but uh,
2: table, I think, two, uh, three. Uh, Graham Evans from uh, Eastern Wealth. Guys, um, you didn't mention Paul particularly. You didn't mention collectives um, as such, and when you talked about your super firms, um, does the model actually of the super firm actually have to be a particular structure? In other words, are you talking about mini corporates? Are you talking about sort of the the type model of partnerships or or collectives um, as part of that process? Is there is there a preferred model from your perspective, uh, or is it just going to be a, a, a whatever works for that sort of particular group?
1: The first thing my business partner, Paul Brain, who's an aerospace engineer, made me do when we started this was read a book called Systems Theory. And paragraph 119 of Systems Theory says, loose systems are better than tight systems. And so they're more adaptable. Um, if, If you have a tight system that says you must do it this way, that system can often be very effective in a particular set of circumstances. But if you take a long-term view, changing demand supply curves, regulation, population, growth, all that stuff, you need a more loose system. So our approach to this is we let our firms grow organically and build their strategies, and we assist and nudge them, but they grow their strategies, their brands, their value propositions on their own. Our job is to make sure that they can exploit the opportunities for growth and scale uh, in their local market. So for instance, in Perth, uh, we have a firm there called McKinley Plowman. And that firm is highly likely to be a dominant player in that market, merging initially AZNGA firms into its network to create a $25 million super firm, then using its expanded balance sheet as a result of that to go and use an M&A strategy to become a $50 million firm and so on and so forth. So that's an example. And that can happen in the different capital cities around Australia that we're now operating in. And each of those businesses could look quite different in terms of the way they're structured, their organisational design, but the point is, they'll have structure, and they'll have organisational design, and they'll have things like you know, KPIs and, and performance management systems and, and, and proper data analysis. Today, the cottage firm doesn't have any of that stuff, which is why they can't implement your solution. Mm. Table 7. Uh, Colin take Paul, You articulated at the outset, supply and demand will
2: increase prices, increase the, uh, the cost of advice. So that sounds like good news for many of the people in this room and their people, but doesn't sound like good news for all Australians getting access to
1: affordable advice. Well, you get what you pay for, Colin. I mean, I'm I'm putting a DA in for a swimming pool at the moment. And I've had to spend something like $43,000 on compliance, on stormwater reports, on... Um, structural engineering, on geotech, on surveying. Now, uh, you know, Australian consumers have no problem spending $7,000 on a surveyor to come into their house and survey their property so they can do the renovation. Yet we're talking about there being a problem, you know, charging $7,000 for a piece of financial planning advice, which is arguably far more impactful. Well, obviously far more impactful. Right, and so I just think there's a paradigm shift required here. We're all sort of debating this price issue, talking about the difference between 3,000 and 10,000. There's, there's a completely new um, paradigm about to happen. When, when you're in front of a specialist, and that person is imparting knowledge on you, that is clearly uh, very educated specialist valuable knowledge, you tend not to as a consumer, think about it in any sphere of your life, as a consumer, you just pay for it, right? You, you do. You, 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 hear the, you hear the wisdom, you get, you get the advice that you haven't got anywhere else, and you pay the price. And that's, again, back to my theory, these businesses that are emerging are going to have specialist capability, deep and narrow capability that consumers are going to pay for. Now, they're not going to be the consumers that someone described yesterday as orphans in a platform business. Okay? There's a different solution for them required, I agree. I don't know what that is.
0: And we'll close out, we've got 30 seconds, so succinct question and answer. Um, Ideally for Matt, table five, uh, take it away, Matt.
1: Um, So sorry, Matt, the question is for Paul. Um, That's allowed. It's not you, is (laughs) it? I'm trying to work out how I can short sell pool uh, renovators, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, Paul, for your model to work, and it's clearly, it's working for you, you, there must be an attitudinal change in the supplier of the capital, okay, and also then the vendors, in some ways, of the stakes in the businesses, the advisors themselves. So I was interested because you've seen it all, all the way around. What, what are those couple of attitudinal changes in capital supply and the attitudes of the advisors? and then w- what's that going to mean for someone like Matt and what he's got to try to do with AMP? Yeah, great question. Um, for once, from you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, good to see you, Paul. Um, look yeah we got lucky with our capital supply they, they they operate in a number of countries around the world and they can see the regulatory changes that have happened here they can see them playing out in the other markets they can see it in the uk they can see it in you know, some emerging markets believe it or not and so they can see what's happening and they are a firm that thinks in terms of 50-year cycles they don't think in terms of one or three years and they're saying to themselves well how do we you know, keep our business around. We've been around 35 years. We've survived as a particular type of business model. How do we survive in the next 50 years? And so the 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 answer to that question they asked themselves was, we've got to invest in the advice margin, because the product distribution model is dying. Vertical integration is going to become questioned all around the world. It's even being questioned. Can you believe in Italy? It's been questioned. So they, the last bastion of you know <laughs> that stuff. Um, so look, it, it, it's definitely an attitudinal change. They've got, they think, long term and they understand that the advice margin is, is king. That's the first, and on the advisor side, advisors know that you know, these people are business owners now and they know that the only way they can have a, a prosperous future is to be commercial SME operators and therefore they have to partner with different types of suppliers and smart suppliers who can help them be that. They don't want to be salespeople anymore. So those two things in concert uh, are very much required, but you know, we could go on for hours about that.
0: Talking of hours, there are a few more hours left in the conference, but there's, alas, no more left of this marvelous session. I think we've left everyone wanting more, which is never a bad thing. If you'd like to ask Matt and Paul questions, you have the a- options of the lunch and the imminent closure. So thank you so much pleasure. for a great <laughs> session. <laughs> we've got... Uh,